careful, like those hairy tarantulas, which you don't get in Durban, and all sorts of things. I was terrified of that. And then I very distinctly remember my mom having a conversation with me where she said, Grant, never, ever read someone's diary or journal. That's private. That's personal. You don't do that. That is a betrayal of trust. That is one of the worst things you can do. That is like high treason to read someone else's journal. But like many of you, I'm sure, I did go into my sister's room and go through cupboards and drawers because I wanted to know the hot goss of what was going on in my 10-year-old sister's life. And whew, it was wild. You wouldn't believe. Um, but I say that because as we enter into the scriptures and particularly into the Psalms, it feels like we're reading through someone's diary or journal. It feels like we're getting into some of the most intimate places of people's inner world and we're getting to see their thoughts and their feelings and their fears and their doubts and their questions. And it does almost feel like we're going through their journal. It feels like we're in this holy ground, this very personal space, let into this really special part of their lives as we read some of these scriptures. And they are raw. The Psalms are incredibly raw and real because we're reading people's prayers. We're reading the things that people say to God when no one else is listening. We're, we're reading the things that people share honestly and vulnerably, knowing that no one but God knows what they're saying. Now, I don't know what your prayers are like, but if somehow I could do this, just throw up some of your deepest, darkest prayers onto the screen, I'm sure we'd be really nervous. I think even if I think over the last couple of weeks and months, I'm sure there's some prayers that I've prayed that I'd be embarrassed or ashamed or I'd feel really uncomfortable being up on the screen you knowing about, you know, because they are so personal and raw and real. But then when we come to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, that's exactly what we get. We get people's unfiltered prayers, the things that people are saying to God when no one else is watching or listening laid out for us to read and relate to, and also to help us to pray. The book of Psalms is an incredible book. Now, people deal with feelings and emotions in different ways. I think if you've grown up in church or if you've grown up in a religious situation, one of the things that often happens is we get told just to stuff our feelings down. You know, deny your feelings. You know, they're not real. Just push them away. And that kind of happens. So people say, how are you doing? And you're like, no, I'm fine. I'm not angry. I'm not sad. I'm not doubting anything. I'm not stressed about anything. I'm, I'm fine. God is good. He's on the throne. If he's fine, I'm fine. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's carry on, you know. And it's not real. Emotions and feelings are a gift from God. Yes, to be handled in the right way. But that kind of religious way of thinking where we deny our feelings is definitely not the right response. Our culture has a different way. And it's, it is dangerous for me to say our culture because Durban is so diverse. South Africa is so diverse. So part of our culture that is so influential at the moment has a very strong voice in saying that we've got to follow our feelings. We've got to be true to our hearts. You know, to deny our feelings is completely wrong. That's a different way that we can respond to our feelings. Now, I'm not sure that that's so good either, you know. I am... I've been teased by Shell by years about this, four years about this, but she witnessed this thing. We, we often say my parents have got a really bad understanding of nutrition, and there was this moment where I was chatting to my mom in front of Shell, and I said, oh, mom, I've just been craving a pie recently, and Shell, who does not want me to eat pies because they're so fattening and terrible, was like, oh, you know, rolls her eyes. My mom looks at me, and she goes, shame, Grant, shame. I'm so sorry. That's your body's way of telling you you need a pie. You need to go, your body needs the nutrients in that pie. You need to go and get yourself a pepper steak pie from 
Breadmill, just on Cowie Road, which is open 24-7. So if any of you are keen for a pie afterwards, they're really, really good. But Shell was horrified. She's like, that is terrible advice. Just because your body feels like something or desires something or wants something doesn't mean you should have it. And I think that's the way so much of our culture thinks. If I feel like I want something, if I desire something, it must be what I need, it must be good, it must be my body or soul or heart or whatever's way of leading me. But that's not what the scriptures say either. And actually there is a third way that the Psalms offer us. Not a way of denying our feelings and pushing them down, and not a way of just giving in to everything we feel like and want, but a way of coming to God and processing our feelings in prayer which is incredible and very raw as well. If you are familiar with the Psalms, I find some of them quite shocking. Shell and I, we've talked about Psalm 88 quite a lot over the last year and a half because it is so dark. There's, there's two Psalms in the Bible with no hope and Psalm 88 is one of them. It's just dark, depressed, doubting. It's, it's a hard Psalm. And you read through it, and this person is just vomiting all of their pain and hurt and questions onto God. And you think the final verse is going to wrap it up beautifully. But God is so good, I will praise his name. But that verse isn't there. It's all dark. Well, Psalm 109, which I've been shocked by recently, which is a, a prayer of anger and vengeance. Someone has been betrayed and they're bringing their anger and frustration over this betrayal to God. And one of the verses which shocks me that it is there, the, the psalm writer prays and says, God, would you make their children fatherless and their wife a widow? They're praying for the death of the person who's betrayed them. They want them to suffer and their family to suffer. It's welcome to church. It's like, it's a really, really dark psalm of this person pouring out their hurts and pain before God. And I read those and I think, God, those shouldn't be in your book, you know? That doesn't sound Christian to me. That's bad PR for you, God. Like, you've got enough bad PR in the world, enough people who are not fans of you, and that stuff's in the scriptures, but it's there. And I think it's a gift to us that it's there. And this is why God is a big boy. And I don't mean that derogatively. God is a big boy. He can deal with our wrestles and our doubts and our fears and our concerns and our questions and our struggles. He can deal with it. And I feel like Psalm 88 and 109 are gifts to us because we see the psalmist venting and pouring out their pain and confusion and hurt by faith to God in prayer because they don't know what to do. They're not discussing it with people. They're not, they're not um, expressing it to everyone. They're not leaking pain. They're coming to God by faith and saying, God, this is what's going on inside of me. This is how I feel. And bringing it to God who's big enough to take those feelings and emotions on themselves. They're not saying they think they're right. God's not saying the feelings are right or they should be acted on. But God is big enough for us to bring those things to him rawly in prayer. And I love that about him. God calls us to pray through the unattractive, uninstagrammable, dark feelings and days of our life, which I think is an amazing invitation. It shows us something amazing about who God is and what he's like and what our relationship with him can be, which I hope for some of you is encouraging tonight in the place you might find yourself. The Psalms invite us not just to pray neat and tidy, simple, polite prayers, but real raw prayers before our Father in heaven. We don't need to sanitize our feelings. It's okay if they're raw. It's okay if they're messy. It's okay if they're untidy. It's okay if there's questions and doubts. 
because bringing those things to God in prayer is an act of faith on itself. If you don't bring them to God, that's, that's where we have to be concerned. But if we bring those things to God, it is an act of faith. Even those dark, doubting, discouraged, depressed prayers are an act of faith at times where we might doubt and not trust and not feel very faith-filled. So are you ready to read through the honesty and vulnerability of someone's prayers? This is literally like getting into someone's diary and just seeing what they've been scribbling down and seeing their wrestles and their struggles. And this is very real and relatable. So Psalm 73, verse one to three. God is indeed good to Israel. And I think there you could say, God is indeed good to the church. God is good to his people, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. Why? For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And this is our intro into Psalm 73, this prayer of Psalm 73. And the psalmist is someone named Asaph, and they're in the grip of envy. And we see here that just the dangerous and powerful effect of this envy on his life. Now to envy is to want someone else's life, to want what they have, or to want at least part of their life and part of what they've got. Or maybe to go a bit deeper, to envy is to feel that not only do they not deserve their good life, but that you do, and that God is being unfair by not giving it to you. Anyone felt like that before? Don't have to raise your hands, but I appreciate See that hand, yeah. Any. Maybe an even kind of darker quote. Frederick Buchner in one of his books wrote, envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. Basically, it's like, let's bring everyone down to the same level as me, or maybe preferably even a little bit lower, but just not higher. Then I can feel good about myself. But I don't like looking at people who feel more successful, like they're doing better at life, because that makes me feel bad. That makes me compare and envy. None of us like to admit those thoughts on our hearts, though, hey? That we think them, or that we pray them, or that we feel them, or that they affect and impact our faith. Because envy is spiritual self-pity. Envy is spiritual self-pity. Feeling bad about where we are in comparison to others. And when we envy, we forget who we are. We forget that we're sinners. We forget that we don't deserve anything from God. We forget that God is good and that he's already given us so many good things. We lose sight of whatever it might be, but the positive things in our lives. And this envy drains the goodness and joy out of our life that we aren't even able to enjoy the good things God has already given us because we don't have what they have. I can't enjoy this life because I don't have what you have. And this isn't a little insignificant thing. You know, if this was a small thing, I could just say, guys, be like Jesus, don't envy, amen? Let's go home, and we could wrap this up. But what we see in Psalm 73 is how significant this is. This envy and its grip on Asaph's life nearly causes him to lose his faith and lose his life entirely. It's a very powerful and very significant thing. And in verse two, Asaph says that he nearly slipped and fell that his feet nearly went astray, that he was walking on God's path and then something happened and he started to nearly drift from God's path to go his own way. He didn't want to follow God's way anymore. He was going to go his own way because he was drawn by the lives he saw of these people that he envied. Other translations write that he nearly, nearly lost his foothold. Now, when do you need a foothold? When you're climbing. I'm not a rock climber. 
But you, you need a foothold not when you're just walking down the street. You know, that's easy. You need a foothold when you're on uneven ground, when, when you're climbing up, when you're going up a mountain. And if your foot slips, you can fall. You, you can fall off a mountain. You can fall off the path. You could fall and die. And that's exactly what's happening with Asaph here. He nearly lost his footing. He nearly lost his faith. He says he was on the edge. And if it had just gone a little bit more this way, he would have been done. And in verse 3, it tells us why. He says, for I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He nearly lost his faith because of envy. Envy can be a really, really powerful thing. Now think about this and the importance of these words. Asaph is a man who God used to write scripture. So fairly significant. Used by God in a powerful way. He wrote a bunch of the Psalms. He's probably far down the spiritual journey, much further than most of us, maybe all of us in this room. He's, he's an incredible man of God. But here we see his weakness and his vulnerability. Here we see his doubts and his drifting. Here we see him sharing with us how just a simple everyday thing that we all struggle with, like envy, nearly caused him to lose his faith and drift from God altogether. So that's a wake-up call from, for us. A mighty man like Asaph nearly lost his faith because of envy in his heart and life. And he shows us where his doubts come from. He says, I saw. I saw. He saw the lives of others and really the way the world worked. And it impacted him significantly. He saw the injustice of the world. He saw that not everyone's life is equal. So that not everything that happens in our world is fair. And it nearly caused him to stumble and lose his faith. You see, he envied the wicked. He thought, God, why not me? Why them? Why not me? I'm a good guy. Like, look at their lives. Look at the lives of the wicked. Look at the lives of these prosperous, arrogant people. You know, surely it shouldn't be this way. Surely they shouldn't be doing so well. Surely I should be God. I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. I do the right things. I'm a Christian. I try and follow you. I come to church on Sunday. I pray. I read my Bible. I tithe. I care for the poor. I love my neighbor. Whatever it is, I do all of these things. And I'm struggling. My life is hard. Every day is tough. And these guys out there are living the good life. How can you be good, God, if this is the way it works? It doesn't make sense to me. He says, if I'm a good person, trying to follow you, trying to do what you call me to do, and everything is going wrong for me, how is that fair? And those guys out there are not good they hate you. They make fun of you and mock you, God. They think they don't need you, and they hurt others with their words and their deeds. They're unjust, unkind, selfish people. How can everything be going their way? That is not right. So he questions, and he doubts, and he nearly loses his faith because of what he sees and experiences in this world. Tim Keller says, doubts come when personal experience makes what your mind knows unreal to your heart. Doubts come when personal experience makes what your mind knows unreal to your heart. Asaph knows that God is good. He's been walking with God for a long time. He knows the truth. He knows God is good. He knows God loves him. He knows that God is a good, kind king who rules and reigns over everything. He knows that God is just and will do what is right. And he will deal with wickedness, injustice, and the brokenness of the world. He knows those things about God. But as he sees and experiences the injustice and brokenness of the world, as he sees these people prospering 
and his life hard, and maybe the people he loves and cares for going through real difficulty, it throws him. He nearly slips and falls and loses his faith because his feelings, his experience in that moment overshadow what he knows to be true and nearly shipwreck his faith. Maybe some of you feel like that right now. You know that God is a certain way, but what you're feeling and experiencing and encountering is overshadowing what you know to be true and it's impacting you and affecting you. I love verse one of the psalm. God is indeed good to Israel. God is indeed good to the church, to the pure in heart, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. I love that word indeed, because when do you use that word? Use it when you wanna make a point. God is indeed good, you know, you're emphasizing. Or you might use it when you doubted for a while. You know, you weren't so sure. Is God good? Isn't he good? You research, you live a bit, you experience a bit, you think this through, you work it through, and you come to the conclusion God is good. And you say, he is indeed good. I've experienced it. I've researched it. I've studied it. I've walked down this road. And I can tell you, I used to doubt. I used to be unsure. But God is indeed good. And that's probably the message Asaph wants to preach to us tonight. God is indeed good. He's good, no matter what you're going through. He's good no matter what you're suffering. He's good no matter what you're facing. He's good no matter what you see or what you might envy. God is indeed good. And these first three verses are so important to understanding the psalm, but more than that, they're really important to understanding the way our hearts work. So let me just focus in on one last thing here. Asaph writes, God is indeed good to the pure in heart. And when we read that, like we might question and just think, wow, okay, well, I know my heart's not super pure, so does that mean God's not gonna be good to me? Does that mean this week I need to go and work hard at purifying my heart? Get out the bleach, get out the soap, go to town, or whatever it is, just pray and fast and work hard to say, God, please cleanse my heart. Well, the reality is that can't be true. The scriptures show us that until Jesus returns, our hearts are never gonna be perfect. They're never gonna be perfectly pure. And I love it. Speaking to old Christians who've walked with God for decades, generally their experience has been the closer they get to God, the more the light of his holiness shines in their lives and they see their imperfection, their need for grace, their need for him. I don't think as we get closer to God, we see how perfect we are. I think we see how perfect he is. So it's not saying we need to be perfect to experience the goodness of God. It must mean something else. Now, to be pure is to be of one substance. Think of pure gold. All the impurities are taken away. It is one metal alone. That's pure gold. Here, to be pure in heart is to be after one thing, to be wholeheartedly after God. God is good to those who are wholeheartedly after him, who love him and have him at the center of their lives. Well, on the other hand, it's contrasted with the arrogant and the wicked, those people who aren't interested in God at all. Their hearts aren't pure. Their hearts aren't after God. Their hearts are after other things. Their hearts have chosen something else to serve and to live for. Now, this phrase, pure in heart, is about attitude. It's about the attitude of our heart. It's about what we're after. It's about what's going on at the center. And really, one of the big things the psalm wants to teach us is that our attitude is more important than our experience. Our attitude is more important than our circumstance and what we're going through. So if you're going through suffering and hardship with a pure heart, with an attitude that is 
settled in God, you won't be shaken by the things that you face. But if you've got an attitude of envy like Asaph had, and you go through hardship and you experience the injustices of the world and you see how the wicked are doing so well and you're struggling so much, if we've got an attitude of envy or an attitude after other things, we will be shaken and we might lose our faith. Same circumstances, different attitude, different results. Maybe another illustration about where we're at tonight. You know, you've all come in here tonight. Hopefully tonight's a solid church service. I think worship was great. Maybe not blow your hair back great, but great. You guys killing it. Hopefully I'm preaching a decent word. I think if nothing, solid from the Bible. You know, my job is to feed you, maybe not to blow your minds or whatever it is, but I'm hoping tonight will help you, you know, and encourage you. And what can happen is we can come in here with different attitudes. You come in here with a pure heart. Even if this is an ordinary night, what happens is you leave and you go, you know, I'm so encouraged. I've sung all those songs before. I've actually heard that message before, seen all those people before. But you know what? Being in that space, just encouraged to serve God. Just, I feel encouraged to go into this weekend to live for Him and to love Him. That was a good time together. We can come in with an attitude that's not pure-hearted, not after God, and go, heard that before, didn't get anything out of that. That was a waste of time. Same circumstance, different attitude, different outcome, or different experience. And I want to say to us, Harbor City, our attitudes have more of an impact on us than our circumstances do. And our attitudes determine our experience of life. Are you pure of heart? Or have you got an attitude of envy, looking out, wanting what they have, thinking God's not good, that God's not fair? What the psalmist saw around him, what he experienced, what he felt, deeply impacted him. And it led to him having a crisis of faith. I think the last 18 months for many people have led them to have a crisis of faith. So if that's you, maybe this speaks to you tonight. What did he see that led him to this place? Let's read from verse four. They, the wicked, have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness, which is not what we would say today. That's not really politically correct. Just means they've got a lot of food. You know, they are well fed. They're well nourished. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. I love that. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, How can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase their wealth. Maybe I can just contemporize that for us a little bit because I know some of those phrases are not fully familiar to us. He's saying they have easy lives. They have good food and good wine. They've got no problems. They can do whatever they want. They're free. They've got options. They've got opportunities. They're rich and successful. They say what they want, even if it hurts others. They don't care about others' feelings. They don't care about other people. They care about themselves. They care about what they have. They care about their comfort and lives. They're healthy, wealthy, and free without a care in the world. And maybe the worst thing for Asaph, this is the kicker, is that they curse and mock God. 
They're not interested in God, and nothing happens to them. This is the thing he doesn't get. They live this unjust way, and nothing happens to them, even though they mock God, they make fun of God with their words and lives. And because of all of this, they, see, they don't see that they've got a need for him. And you can understand it. They've got everything they need. They're better off than anyone around them. Their lives are easy and good. What can God give to them that they haven't already given to themselves, at least from their vantage point? And when Asaph sees and experiences this, here's his response. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. Asaph saying, what is going on, God? Are you good? Why me and not them? Why me? I'm living a good life. I'm being moral and righteous. I'm going to church. I'm praying. I'm doing all the right things, caring for the poor, loving my neighbors, and I'm not sinning like them. You know, I'm not doing some of the things that I would love to do, some of the desires of my heart that I'd love to give into. That's all they do, and my life is hard. Things are going wrong. My prayers aren't answered. Things are not easy. I'm afflicted every day. And they seem to be living the good life. He doesn't understand it. This is the message version. It translates part of it this way. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. That's how Asaph felt about his life. He's played by the rules and he's just gotten slapped in the face. I don't know if you ever think like that or feel like that or maybe even right now. Maybe that's how you feel like, why have I been doing this whole God thing, this Christian thing? It's not working for me. Look at them, the proof's in the pudding. This also reveals something that's inside of our hearts, you know? And that is just that if we're feeling those things, it means we're living in such a way, not to please God, but so that God would please us. We're not living to serve God. We're living in such a way that God would serve us and make our lives easy and simple and pleasant. He goes on in verse 15 and says, if I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. This is a huge hinge point, turning point in the psalm. Until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. What has changed for Asaph there? You know, what, what has changed in his response to God? What has changed in his response to life? Well, he's gone from a place of envy and comparison to a place of worship. He's gone from envying the lives of these people to seeing God and having a complete heart change. He was looking horizontally. He was just seeing what was going on around him and the brokenness of the world and the imperfection of the world. And then he looked vertically for a change and he saw God in his glory and it's adjusted everything. It's completely changed his heart. That could be like you and I, doom scrolling, just going through our phones, news, news, bad news, COVID, economy, this, that, the next thing. And then actually going from the bad news of the realities of the things around us to the truth of God's word and seeing God's goodness to us. Not just looking around, but coming into the sanctuary and seeing God and the goodness and the good news of him 
changing our entire attitude and response. Asaph goes into the temple. He comes into a church service. He comes into a place where his head is lifted to see God and everything changes. He's reminded of all of these things and he repents. He repents of his attitude. He repents of his thoughts. He repents of what he was feeling and thinking because he's got a new perspective. I can't tell you how many times that's happened for me. Even coming into a service like this and just not feeling like it, just going, oh, you know, the Formula One was on. <laughs> nice to just lie on the couch and doze off, have a cup of tea, you know, maybe get into bed early with a book. But I've come, and even though I didn't think this would be significant, it's like God has given me fresh perspective, shown me himself, shown me what's true, what's right. He's corrected some of my thinking, which has drifted. He's brought me back into truth and into life because God meets with us when we make time for him. I think that's something we need to be reminded of so often. So often, if you're like me, you think, oh, you know, I don't, need, I don't need to be with God today. You know, it's fine. I don't need to spend time praying on the scriptures. It's fine. And we miss it. And when we come back to be with God, we realize, why have I not done this every day? Why haven't I come to church every Sunday? Why have I missed out on this? Because I need to be him. I need to see this, not just what's going on around me all of the time, because it impacts me so strongly. Asaph comes into the sanctuary. His head is lifted to see God, and he says, then I understood their destiny. What he's saying is in God's presence, he gets fresh perspective. In God's presence, he gets fresh perspective. He sees in a new way. It's like he zooms out. I'm sure you've had this before. You get tunnel vision on something, and it's all you can see and all you can think about. Sometimes it makes you very anxious. And then something happens, and it zooms you out and gives you fresh perspective, and it's like you see so much more. It's like that famous hymn, which I love. I think it's got so much truth in it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. And I think sometimes, you know, the things of the world have grown strangely large because we haven't turned our eyes upon Jesus. We need that fresh perspective, coming into his presence, seeing him the vertical, not just the horizontal, to actually make it through these things. He zooms out to see the bigger picture, how life works in light of God. And he zooms out just from the snapshot of the temporary, these people, the wicked people prospering, to see the eternal picture, the, the, the full scale, not just now, but what is to come for thousands and thousands of years into the future. And Asaph realizes a few things that he hadn't realized before. He realizes that envy wears you down. Don't know if you would put yourself in Asaph's shoes now. Feel like you are envying other people. But envy wears you down, makes you tired. It drains you comparing yourself to others. Envy makes you bitter. Asaph has become bitter about his life. Why don't I have their life? Why don't I have what they have? And envy forgets eternity. Envy tempts us to crave what is now, what is temporary, while we devalue what is eternal. We lose sight of the bigger picture, the eternal picture, the story that we're living in that goes into eternity, and that it's not just now, what we're going through, what we're facing. Asaph goes from looking horizontally to vertically, and he has a new attitude and perspective that changes the situation. Verse 21, when I became embittered, this is his new perspective. 
When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I feel like that sometimes. That language feels strong, but it's true. Sometimes I think, ah, I was being so stupid. I was thinking wrongly. Now I can see so much more clearly. I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you, God. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. That is such an incredible encouragement. When you and I are walking along, when we're putting our feet in those footholds and we nearly slip, when we're focused on the wicked, when we're envious, when we want their life, you know where God is? He's right there with you holding your right hand. Doesn't leave you, doesn't forsake you, doesn't say, how dare you take your eyes off of me. God is holding your right hand even as your foot is slipping and you might leave his path to go your own way. Asaph catches this and he repents. He's so humbled. He can't believe that he's, he's drifted so far from God, but now he sees clearly and he comes back to a God who never left him and was always holding his hand. We'll end with these last few verses. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me up in glory. I shared this recently. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. That's a huge change from where we found ourselves at the beginning in the first few verses. God is his refuge where before he thought, where are you, God? Are you even good? He's seen God and he's made him his refuge. The book of Job is um, it's a longer book in the Old Testament. It's just over 40 chapters. But it's a, it's a profound story about suffering in the presence of God, if you haven't read it before. And in the book of Job, Job loses everything. He loses every, everything is stripped from him in his life. He loses his wealth. He loses his family. He loses his health. Everything that is important from him is taken from him. And he has this moment of questioning God like any of us would do, saying, God, why? Why has this happened? Why, why has all of this been stripped from me? And rather than giving Job answers to his questions, God points him to himself. God reveals himself. Reveals his glory, his presence, his power, his wisdom. God reveals himself to Job. He knew that Job's impulse was to seek answers, but he knew that what Job needed more than anything else was to see him. So he lifts Job's head to reveal himself. He doesn't get the answers that he wants, but he gets the God that he needed. Barber City envy minimizes the goodness of God in our sight. When we look to other things, to other people, when we want that rather than what we have and where we are, it minimizes God's goodness and we don't see him as good. We don't see him for how great he is. We lose sight of him for these things that we want instead. Before coming into the temple and seeing God, Asaph is focused on this. That is his life. That's consuming him. But after he comes into the sanctuary and he sees God, he has a completely different perspective completely different attitude and a completely different response if i could ask the band to come up now and if i could ask you to stand where you're currently sitting i'd love just to create a moment where we can respond to psalm 73 and asaph's experience and
maybe the experience that we need right now. If you are comfortable closing your eyes, I'd love it if you did just come into the sanctuary, whatever that means for you. Come into the sanctuary, come to be with God, come to see Him. And I want to ask you, how do you need to respond tonight to Psalm 73? Who are you in light of the words of the psalm? Maybe tonight you need to respond to Jesus and begin to follow Him. Or maybe for you, you know you're not in that place, but you're willing to take a step towards Jesus. Maybe a few steps towards Him. Maybe some of the things which are holding you back from Him, you're saying, okay, I can move some of those out of the way. That's part of my response to you. Maybe you realize tonight you've been looking horizontally, you've been doom scrolling, you've been very envious of the lives of other people and you realize actually you need to see God. You need to look vertically. I think for a few of us tonight that that word attitude is the word. You realize tonight my heart is not pure. My heart is not after God. My heart is after other things. I've got an attitude of envy and it's, it's coloring everything. It's shaping everything. It's influencing everything. It's affecting everything. It's changing my experience of everything. Maybe for some of you, the last 18 months have made you doubt God and His goodness and where He is. I don't know what your response needs to be tonight, but we're gonna sing a beautiful song called The Hiding Place. And as we sing, I think what we've seen with the Psalms tonight is you have permission to pray raw prayers before God, honest prayers before God. And that's what I'd invite you to do. You're welcome to sing the song, the beautiful lyrics. But for everyone, I'd love you to respond to God in the way you feel His Spirit prompting you to respond tonight. So Holy Spirit, again, we just, we ask you to come wherever we are standing in this room and meet with us and help us to respond to you now.
name of the Lord is our hiding place. God is our shelter and fortress secure. The name of the Lord is our hiding by the song we just uh, sang right now talking about how God is our hiding place it kind of takes me back to um, the 17th verse from the psalm that we read today about uh, so Asaph says until I entered God's um, sanctuary then I understood their dent, um, their destiny and I just want to encourage us um, as the week begins that we would take um, just that space of being quiet with God like really seriously and that we would just be one with God because that changes everything and as we are encouraged we become an encouragement to other people and we strive to be a church that really wants to know Jesus through his word and wants to share that with other people so that the great commission goes out to the ends of the world to Durban and, and the world beyond so as we go out um, there's no coffee sorry about that 
but Bread and Mills is open for all those who are wanting pies. <laughs> so go in peace and God bless you.